Well, good morning. It is great to be with you. You are not aware of me, but I know you. And I am thankful, so thankful for this opportunity to be here uh, this morning. Um, as was mentioned a little bit earlier, I had contact with this church many, 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 many years ago, uh, which dates me, I know. We were trying to figure out how long it had been, maybe around 20 years ago. I was in ministry and uh, preaching through Romans, got in trouble and uh, found a church called Reformed Baptist Church of Nashville that uh, revealed to me that there were others who loved the doctrines of grace, that there were others who loved a sovereign God and who loved the Holy Scriptures. And so I found a, a fellowship uh, with your church to, to know there was others who loved uh, to enjoy the same atmosphere uh, that I breathe, and uh, I'm thankful for that. So uh, I'm honored to be here this morning, um, to be able to preach in your pastor's absence. I know what a uh, high privilege it is to be in such a pulpit, and uh, I, uh, I treat it with great sacredness and great uh, reverence. So thankful to be here. Uh, Galatians chapter 2 is where I would like to take you this morning. Galatians chapter 2. And if you're probably asking why Galatians chapter 2, it's because this was where I left off in the interim church. Uh, I didn't get to preach this passage, and I figured it'd be a great place just to pick back up since I was familiar with the context. Uh, but Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10 is where I want us to be this morning. Beginning in verse 1, I'll be reading from the New American Standard, so there may be a few differences. Galatians chapter 1, this is the Word of God. And after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus with me also. And it was because of a revelation that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised but it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, he effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I also was eager to do. Let's pray. Father, we honor the reading of your word and know that the authority and the inspiration that it brings as the word of the living God has the power to encourage, to convict, to save, to build up and to edify, and most importantly, to glorify you. And my prayer this morning, Father, as we engage in this study, as we look back to what had happened, what was going on in this church, 
in the hearts and minds of these people, that you might carry us into that same setting and help us have a, a full understanding of what was going on and what the significance of it, Father, is and was. And we ask and pray for grace, Father. Grace as I present the truth of the gospel and grace as your people listen and as sinners respond and as the church is edified and built up. Give us great grace for it is needed, we pray, in the power of the Spirit. And in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I think it's unique how the Lord has created our bodies. They have a response system to danger. When you think about it, how the Lord has created the body to be able to self-preserve itself. Many times, with pretty much all the time, without of us being involved, you drink something that's cold too fast and your brain gets that, that pain. You get an allergen or some foreign material into your nasal cavity and you begin to sneeze. Or you get some object into your eye that might cause your eyes to tear up. You might find that uh, your body sweats as a result to try to keep you from overheating and to help regulate your body's temperature. Or you might find yourself and an opportunity and a position to be faced with something that might put you at risk and, and therefore uh, the adrenaline begins to take over your body to give you that fight or flight type of response. Or even something as horrible as dehydration uh, that your body without your permission will begin to take necessary drastic steps to take fluid to your major organs to keep you alive as long as possible. Gives great Revelation to us of a sovereign creator who would give us bodies that would seek to preserve themselves and protect themselves. And as we come to Galatians chapter 2, we find a man by the name of the Apostle Paul who was concerned about not necessarily preserving his own life. For we understand uh, many times he makes mention he was ready to give his life for the gospel. He was ready to give his life for Christ. But we see a man that was... Uh, overwhelmed with a desire to preserve and protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. To protect it from error, to protect it from those who would seek to uh, dilute its message. And as you read through Acts, and as you see Paul at work, and as you read through his letters and his epistles, you see a man who seemed to be always fighting to protect and to preserve the gospel of Jesus Christ from attack. Philippians chapter 1, verse 16, he says of himself, he was appointed for the defense of the gospel. Paul was always fighting, for he saw it as something that was worth preserving. So this passage that we are looking at deals with many, many things that are happening at this point. He's not only trying to preserve and protect the gospel, but he's also trying to uh, show why he has the ability and the reason and the authority to speak as an apostle for the Lord God had called him to do that. This morning, before we begin, I think it's important just so you know that we're on the same page regarding what the gospel is, is just a quick reminder of what the gospel is. The gospel is the good news that though we are sinners that though we are all deserving of hell, that though we are all lawbreakers by birth and by practice, by nature and by behavior, and we are all worthy of eternal hell, God has provided a rich atonement. 
God has provided a sufficient covering in the perfect life. Crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And by faith in that man, that God of the Lord Jesus Christ, our faith in Him, God gives to us His promises that come to us unearned, undeserved, all fully bearing the weight of the, of the majesty and the glory and the perfect holiness of the God-man, Jesus Christ. God enters into covenant with us to never leave us, to never forsake us, and that no matter what we might fail to do, how we might fail to love Him with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, He will never fail to love us. And that is the glory of the gospel and very good reason why we would understand Paul would go to such great lengths in order to protect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Has history not proven to us time and time again how easily the gospel can be neglected? Has history not proven to us time and time again how the gospel can be watered down or diluted? Protestant Reformation was God's great grace to the world and to the church by using a, a Augustinian monk to go to the scriptures and to begin to study the word of God and see that there was conflict between what the word of God declared and what the church and the pope was saying. And as he penned his 95 theses to the church door, the Lord used it to spark the Protestant Reformation. Which allows us today to sit here and to sing the songs that you have just sung this morning. To worship together as a congregation, lifting your voices up to the Lord as you engage in worship to God as a corporate body of believers. And to know that we are saved by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ as the rest. Not by our labors, not by our works, not by our efforts, but by the works, the labor and the efforts of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the point of my message this morning, the point and the essence of what I want to share with you is that we cannot afford for the gospel to be diluted, distorted, neglected, but rather defended, defined even, and courageously declared because too much is at stake. See, what's at stake? The glory of God is at stake. The gospel of Jesus Christ uh, presented to the world and to the church in its purity of what it really is brings glory to God. And that should be our aim. The health and soundness of the church. That we might be in true health spiritually and, and be healthy and, and grow in the grace. The grace of Christ. The salvation of sinners. That lost people who are headed for an eternal hell might hear that a substitute has stood in their place in order to redeem them and keep them from that. And I'll even add to it the joy of believers. That as we hear the gospel and as we hear it preached and proclaimed and taught and lived, it brings joy. Great joy to our hearts and to our lives. The gospel indeed is a glory worth preserving and protecting. And that's what we find the Apostle Paul is doing this in this passage before us. 
He's dealing with multiple issues. He's dealing with what is going on in the Galatian church as Paul has uh, gone into this region and he has planted churches and as uh, he has ministered, he has known that an enemy was going to come in. He said it even to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 when he said, after my departure, savage wolves will come in, not sparing the flock. He knew that's what would happen. Because we have an enemy who, as much as we love the gospel, he hates the gospel and wants to rob it from our own lives and from the church. And he wants to dilute it and he wants to water it down and he wants to distort it. Because he's not out for our joy and he's not out for our salvation, but rather our destruction. So we need to understand and not be naive to think that we don't have to deal with this, that we're immune somehow in the day and age in which we live, even in the midst of a, a, a gospel excitement, how easy it can be for these things to take place. And so Paul is writing in his own day to help bring these Galatian believers back because they were beginning to get away from the gospel that he had preached. Verse 6 of Galatians 1, he says, I am amazed that you were so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel. And the different gospel that they were dealing with was the Judaizers, the, the false teachers that were trying to convince them that not only did they need faith in Christ in order to be saved, but they needed they needed circumcision. But if they wanted to be saved, they had to be circumcised. If they wanted to be saved, they had to practice Jewish uh, traditions and the Mosaic law. The very thing that Paul has been fighting against. Showing that in Christ and in Christ alone, the salvation come. And so he is writing to them to try by the grace of Christ to get them back to a pure gospel. But he's also writing to defend his apostleship. Here's a man who, who loves Christ and, and he loves the gospel and he loves the church. And as he's ministering to them, he, he realizes that the enemy, the wolves, have come in and already begun to wreak havoc. And he sees this, this erosion in their theology, in their salvation, their, their soteriology. And so Paul writes to convince them as well that he is an apostle not self-appointed, but an apostle called by Christ himself. And he lets them know, as you read through uh, the, the, uh, the first chapter of it, that he had the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 11, I'd have you know, brethren, that the gospel which was preached by me, it's not according to man. I didn't make this up. And neither did I receive it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ discipled me. Sharing with me the gospel. Teaching me the gospel. And so he writes to defend this apostleship. So what I want to do this morning is, is I've kind of dropped you into that context to understand what is happening. To go to Galatians chapter 2 and to see Paul as he goes to Jerusalem. To be with the apostles and to submit his gospel Let's walk through some of these sectional highlights, and then I want to leave you with some application as we close this morning. First of all, we see an apostolic presentation. That is, Paul is going to Jerusalem, and he is going to present to the apostles uh, the gospel that he preached. 
And so we see in verse 1 that he says that after an interval of 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus also. So after 14 years from his first visit, now again, we're, we're getting into some people hold different views regarding what's going on here. Uh, I believe this is in response to Acts chapter 15. Uh, the the first church council gathering uh, to discuss was circumcised necessary in order for the Gentiles to be saved. I believe that's that's my conviction. Uh, some hold that it's Acts chapter eleven and twelve, but regardless of of what position you hold, the the conclusion is this: it's it's Paul is going to Jerusalem to submit to them the gospel that he preaches, regardless of the context. In our studies and our convictions, it boils down to he is going to Jerusalem to lay before the apostles the message of the gospel, the message that he preached. The first time that he went, it seems there is uh, it's in regards to the fact that he wanted uh, Peter just to get acquainted with him. Verse 18, three years later, I went up to Jerusalem to become acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and he stayed with him 15 days. He's letting us know he went to Jerusalem uh, to meet Peter and to get acquainted with him. He tells us that's the reason he went. It wasn't to go and to learn the gospel. It wasn't to go and to get a deeper understanding of theology. Jesus Christ had tutored him. Jesus Christ had revealed to him the nature of, and the understanding of his theology, that was his conviction. But he goes up to Jerusalem because of revelation, he says. After an interval of 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem. Verse 2, it was because of a revelation that he says that I went up and I submitted to them the gospel which I preach. Regardless if it was a revelation given to Paul or if it was a revelation given to the elders or the pastors in Antioch, he decides he is going back because God has said go. God has revealed to him, go, go up to Jerusalem. And so because of this burden, he goes because of the revelation to lay out before the apostles his gospel. And I don't want us to get the idea or the thought here that as he's doing this, that it's because he thinks somehow he's fearful that he's been preaching the wrong gospel. I think that's inconsistent with, with what the text has already told us. He's not, he's not going to them in hopes that the apostles will be some type of uh, quality control for his theology. I don't believe that he's going there to submit to them the gospel so that they can be some kind of theological gospel safety net for him just in case that there's something wrong in his theology or something wrong in his presentation. No. Paul has been ministering this gospel for 14 years. 17, according to what he's saying there of his first visit. Titus even being with him as evidence of the grace of God. Verse 3, even Titus who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Paul, seeing the grace of God again and again through his ministry, we see it through Acts. He had the message right. It was Jesus Christ and him crucified. That it wasn't salvation by works. It wasn't salvation by our effort. It wasn't salvation by circumcision. It was salvation by the death burial and resurrection of Christ just as it is today he's giving them a picture of the gospel that he preached that he might get validation before the church and to these 
false teachers, that he indeed could be trusted, that he indeed stood on level ground with the apostles so that the Galatian church would embrace his gospel theology and not turn from it. It says that he went with them privately. He did so in private, verse 2, to those who have reputation for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. He wanted to address them, no doubt knowing how important this issue was. You've got souls at stake, lives on the line, eternal destinies that you're dealing with. He understood that and it was, it was because of that that he was compelled to do this according to the scriptures as well to the revelation of Christ for him to go. He didn't want any hindrances at all. At all. But he wanted to go and preach his orthodox theology. And he did. This is what I believe the concern was. James Montgomery Boyce even points to this in his commentary on the book of Galatians. That there was some, something going on that he believed that the, that the false teachers that were there trying to press this, that the apostles were not going to take a hard enough stance on it. That they were not going to somehow come out and declare that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. That they were somehow going to give some type of even mild support to these false teachers. And Paul says he could not stand the thought of this. That he would go and find out that all of his ministry to the Gentiles, verse 2, would find himself as running or had run in vain. He wanted them to take a hard stance, a super hard stance. Well, we see now some apostolic confirmation, verse 3. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. Here's this, this, this Gentile convert to Christianity that even the disciples, the apostles, did not compel him to be circumcised. Here is living proof that you do not need circumcision in order to be saved. And he gets that confirmation from the apostles that they didn't compel him. The whole issue surrounded around verse 4. The false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. These fake Christians, these sham Christians were going to come in by stealth and they were going to seek to bring everybody back into bondage again because that is the hope. That is the goal of the enemies of the gospel. To bring us back into bondage. To remove our liberties. To cause us from putting that, that, that emphasis on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ only. It's important for him and for us as well to fight, to preserve and to protect so that all glory goes to Christ. That all glory goes to him. That that great emphasis of our salvation is laid not on us, but on him. To bring us into bondage. And it should be our conviction as well that righteousness and the righteousness of Christ only comes to the finished work of Christ. You and I this morning are free because of grace. We are free because of the righteousness of another. We are free because of the perfect sacrifice of Christ. And he gets confirmation of it in Acts chapter 15 verse 11. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
in the same way as they also. Verse 5, I believe, gets to the heart of what he's saying, and I love this verse so much. Kind of opened the whole passage up to me. But he said to them, We did not yield into subjection to them for even an hour, for a moment. Not even for a moment did we yield to them. Why? I mean, here's this, this man who goes by revelation, yes, of God, but he goes to the apostles to present and, and to lay out before them uh, his gospel message. And he says, so that the truth of the gospel would what? Remain with you. Would be a permanent fixture. Would, would always be there. They would not be gone when he returned. That is the hope of any pastor. That is the desire of any shepherd of his congregation is that the gospel would always be with you. And not just with the church today, but listen, beloved, we need to also be concerned about the church of tomorrow and the church of the future. That we don't lose ground that we've already gained through our protection and preservation of the gospel. Paul wants this truth to remain. The Apostle Peter had the same, same conviction. He said it this way in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. This is Peter saying this in a different way. He says, therefore, I'll always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. You've been established in the truth which is present with you. He said, I consider it right as long as I am in this earthly dwelling to stir you up by way of reminder. Knowing that the laying aside of my earthly dwelling is imminent. As also our Lord Jesus Christ has made clear to me. And I will also be diligent that at any time after my departure, you will be able to call these things to mind. That the influence of the preaching and the teaching of the truths of Scripture and the glory of the gospel. Will stay with you. Long after your leaders are gone. And as you are facing death. And as you are facing entering into eternity with Christ. That our gospel influence to our children. To our neighbors. To our co-workers. To the world. To the Christians that we're in fellowship with here. Or wherever they may be. The gospel would remain with them as well. Because of the influence of the grace of God. But we find that it's always under attack. When the Lord first saved me, I remember how eager, how passionate, how hungry I was for the truth of God. Because you see, much like you, I'd lived my entire life absent of truth. And when God, in His sovereignty, opened my eyes and converted my soul, I was for the first time aware of God and the glory of God and Christ and what he had done for me. And there was this overwhelming sense of guilt, but I knew I was forgiven because I realized what I had done to God and the way I was living my life. But at the same time, there was forgiveness and a time of refreshing as he was bringing back up, uh, making it real, making it personal. And, and I just began to just devour scripture. Always going to church, hearing the truth. And I hadn't been saved that long. And we were to that point that the Lord had saved both me and, and my wife shortly after. That there was a knock at the door. And I opened the door and there were 
a couple of gentlemen there that were my neighbors across the street that I hadn't met. They had just moved in and they said, would you like to come and have a Bible study? And I said, I'd love to, but I got to get ready. I said, tomorrow my wife and I are getting baptized. And they responded with great excitement. They said, we, we, we would really love to have a Bible study with you. And I said, you know what? I love the Lord. Let's do it. What time? Got up at five o'clock in the morning. They said, we'll meet you there. Just walk across the street. We'll provide you coffee. I had everything I needed. I walk in the door and we sat down and they opened up the scriptures to the book of Acts and began for two hours to convince me that the reason that I was getting baptized that morning was insufficient. And that if I followed through with that baptism to point to the work that Christ had done in my heart and not to wash away my sins, that if I died, I would go to hell. And as a brand new baby Christian, I was terrified. What is going on here? How could I be wrong? How could I be led astray? I mean, I even grew up in church. My mom took me to church until I sat before a very orthodox pastor who encouraged me and reminded me of what the scripture said. That I am saved just like the rest because of grace. That it is because of the suffering death of Christ upon the cross and the atonement that he provided me. That I didn't have to get into my neighbor's bathtub to be baptized for fear I would die walking across the street. That I could trust in the death of my Savior on my behalf. And that righteousness and that blood that was shed for me was 100% sufficient to forgive me of all of my sin. To forgive me of all of my guilt. And even to remove the shame that was associated with it. It's not about my labors. It's not about my effort. It's about the righteousness of Christ. We deal with it as well. But I love what I see here. I see apostolic recognition there in verse 6. But for those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. With those who were of reputation, they contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised. For he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship so that we might go to the Gentiles as they to the circumcised. Paul is not only dealing with the error that people were casting upon the gospel, but he was also dealing with his apostleship and his authority as an apostle. And this, he gets apostolic recognition. He gets the right hand of fellowship. He gets the apostles who said, we're with you and you're with me and we're together and we're united on this and we're one on this. When they see us, it's you with us. And when they see you, it, there was this, this beautiful unity as they shared the same salvation, the same Lord, the same gospel and received recognition from the apostles. And notice what they saw. Notice what they recognized. He said that they saw, verse 7, that Paul had been entrusted with the gospel to the Gentiles. 
the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been the apostle to the circumcised or to the Jew. They saw that. But they also, verse 9, they recognized the grace that had been given to Paul. The evidence. Maybe it was Titus. Maybe it was other believers that were Gentiles. They gave proof and evidence and validity to Paul's ministry as an apostle preaching the gospel. But regardless, whatever it was, they saw it. The apostles did. They recognized it. And he said, they only asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was very eager to do. What a passage. What a passage. What I want to do in the time that we have remaining is to provide some application of how we might respond in light of something like this. Number one, something to consider is the, to properly value the importance of the gospel. Properly value it. Give it the right weight, the right significance. Paul, as you see in this passage and throughout other epistles and letters and books, was driven to spread the gospel. He gave great weight to it, great authority to it. The whole book of Galatians, I'd encourage you to read it. If you haven't read it, it's, it's all about the gospel. He's, he's protecting it. He's defining it. He's clarifying it. He's given these gospel nuggets of how we're saved. It's beautiful. We need to, like him, assign an excessive amount of value and weight to both our understanding of it, our meditation upon it, our appreciation of it, and sharing these truths you say, why? Well, we read it this morning. Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. For in it is the power of God into salvation. You know what he says there? There is no other way to be saved than the gospel. It is the power of God to save. It is the message that you hear and are confronted with. And as the Holy Spirit moves in to minister that, that powerful truth, lives are saved, hearts are converted, and sinners are brought from being under the wrath and condemnation of a holy God to becoming sons and daughters of God Himself. No amount of work, effort, labor can be done on our behalf in order for that to be accomplished. But Paul says... I'm going to walk into Rome armed with the gospel because I know the weight and the, the significance that it has to be able to transform people's lives. Let me hit you with this quote. James Montgomery Boyce said, the most important thing happening in the world at any given time, at any given time, the most important thing happening in the world at any given time is the preaching of the gospel. For there the Spirit of God is at work. There men and women are delivered from the bondage of sin and set free spiritually. That has always stuck with me. Always stuck with me. That there is nothing more important that could ever be happening at any moment than the preaching of the gospel or the sharing of the gospel of making much of Christ and lifting Him up to people who need to hear about it. It outshines and outweighs everything. Even fishing. As exciting as that is. 
There's nothing more fantastic than to preach the gospel and know what it can accomplish. So properly value the importance of the gospel. Secondly, enjoy the liberty that the gospel provides. They said, Paul said, they came in to spy out our liberty. That we might be back into bondage again. Christianity is such a a beautiful and unique reality in contrast to the religions of the world. Because all of the other religions of the world, you know what they teach? You must do something else in order to be saved. You must do something or not do something or, or labor in some way or provide God something that will cause Him to save you. Christianity, over all the other religions of the world, says no. You don't have to perform in order for God to accept you and love you and forgive you. You trust Christ. And you trust His performance and you trust His effort and you trust His labor And that alone will save you. Separates it from every other religion of the world. And makes it unique and glorious. And something worth fighting for. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin. To be sin on our behalf. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What good news is that? Galatians 5, 1 and 2 says it was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. Don't do it. Trust the gospel. Thirdly, trust the gospel of grace and the grace for the gospel. I didn't stutter there. Trust the gospel of grace and the grace for the gospel. Look at verse Chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For he who effectually worked for Peter. God is at work effectually working, bringing people to salvation. As he did that for Peter in his apostleship to the circumcised, he also effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. God was at work. And then he says in verse 9, recognizing the grace that had been given to me. God was giving grace. And I think one of the things that we, we maybe get discouraged with, I know I do, is when I don't see immediate conversions. It's every pastor's hunger and delight is, is to stand before a group of people and to preach the gospel and to have the, the next great awakening, you know, to be a part of something like that. But we also need to be confident in the sovereignty and the providence and the timing of God. That as we preach the gospel and as we teach the gospel and as we share Christ, we might have to just sit back and give it time to simmer. To give those hearts times to percolate. For God to do His work. And we might not ever get to see the fruit of it this side of heaven. It's encouraging when we get to see it, but there's times that we don't. Before the Lord saved me, I was working at a uh, custom shop building guitars. And the Lord saved me while I was there. And the Lord opened up ministry to me and my life drastically changed and everybody there knew it. I was uh, pretty hardcore there at the custom shop. They had to have meetings to say, you need to calm down. I was alive. Spiritually. God loved me and and I knew it because of Christ. And there would always be people that would 
when we were together, they were talking about their love for God. And then when we were, they were with their buddies, they were, they were talking foul. And I believed it was the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I talked to one of these particular gentlemen that I had been talking with. And he spoke of his love for the Lord out of one side of his mouth and out of the other. It was something completely different. And we sat down together and I shared with him about the consistency of living the Christian life for the glory of God and that our mouths and our hearts are to be redeemed and sanctified. And he got mad at me. We never talked again after I left. The Lord called me from there and I began ministering, pastoring in churches. And I, I ran into him one afternoon or one evening at a restaurant. And he came over to me. And he said, I just wanted to let you know that I accepted Christ. That I trusted him. And he changed my life. Where did that come from? Where did that come from? The gospel seed had been planted and in God's own timing and God's own sovereignty. And when it was perfect for him and aligned with God's will for his life, the Lord used that and he saved him. But that doesn't always get to be what we see. We don't always see the fruit of our evangelistic efforts. But what we do need to do is not only trust the gospel enough to share it, but trust the grace that God provides the gospel presentation in his own timing to accomplish that work and make it fruitful. Just trust it. Share it with your friends. Share it with your family. Share it with your loved ones. And if they don't respond, then just trust that one day God in His grace might use that and bring them to faith in Christ. Acts 16, 14. It happened with Lydia. As Paul was preaching, the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. The Lord does this in His great grace. Then lastly, as we close... To be gospel-driven is to be people-driven. To be gospel-focused is to be people-focused. This doesn't just happen in and of itself and we forget about what's going on around us. It's easy to. I mean, I had to rewrite this sermon three times over the last two weeks because I wasn't comfortable with it. I went through a birthing process, not in any way diminishing, ladies. Uh, I know that's... But it was difficult. As I labored and as I labored, interruptions, knocks at my office door, phone calls, sleep, time for dinner, I need help, can become nightmare when you're like, you're not in a brain freeze moment. You're flowing and you're writing. And you're believing that what you have is a message from the Lord and all of a sudden you're, there's a disruption. It's easy to forget about people as we consume ourselves even with the gospel and consume ourselves even with theology and truth, the very things that we all love. We need to also remember, just as the apostles were concerned in verse 10, that they also asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was also eager to do. As we strive to preserve and to protect the gospel, don't lose sight of the fact that there's still people in need. Give yourself to these things, to the study, to the protection, to the heralding of them. But remember, people are hurting and people need help. Wasn't that the way our Lord was? Wasn't that the way he was when people would come to him and need great help? He would give it always. 
And even when you thought he was not going to do it, he was just used to draw out their faith. We see him on the cross giving care to John the Beloved. While dying, he's taking care of his mother. When the women were crying on his way to the cross, don't weep for me. What a perfect substitute. What a glorious gospel. Have you trusted it? Has there been a point in your life where you have come under conviction that you know that you're a lawbreaker? Not just in your actions and in your thinking, but by virtue of your birth. And that the only way for you to be reconciled to a holy God is to trust and cling to Christ, to His perfect life, to His perfect death, to His glorious resurrection from the dead. Think about that. Are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone to secure your eternal salvation? Or are you trusting in something else? Because the Bible says we are to trust in Christ and we are to be saved by grace just as the rest. Trust Him today. He won't let you down. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for our time together. Thank You for a word that reveals to us truth even in the day and age in which we live, where truth is despised, hated. And so, Father, we thank you that you have preserved in a book the message of the gospel. And there's great glory to that, Father, because you're all in it and around it. And we pray that even as we contemplate it and as we have heard it preached and proclaimed today, that the glory of Christ and Him being our all-sufficient substitute and Savior would, would affect us, that we would, as Moses, have that glow upon us. May You transform us, Father, even as redeemed, saved people. Make us more into the image of Your Son, all by the glory that emits from the Gospel. And Lord, you know, because you know all things and you know our hearts better than we know our own hearts, that if there is someone here today who doesn't know you, that they are lost and separated from Christ, that they are deceived. Our prayer this morning is that you might, as Lydia, open up their hearts to receive the things spoken of by Paul. May your spirit be at work powerfully to convert sinners. Present him to them as most beautiful. We will give you the praise. We'll give you the glory.